Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to this recording of the National Stroke Education Center and the Stroke Journey. I'm Jordan Bonomo. I'm a professor of emergency medicine and neurocritical care at the University of Cincinnati. And I'm joined by two colleagues and good friends, experts in the fields, Dr. Chris Drogi, a clinical pharmacist and specialist in the surgical intensive care unit, and Dr. Charlie Kirscher, an assistant professor of emergency medicine and neurocritical care and the director of our UC Stroke team. Gentlemen, welcome. Appreciate you both being here and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. You are experts in the field. You do these things all day, every day, and you're gonna share your knowledge with me and with our listeners. We're gonna be talking today about different types of anticoagulants and their clinical applications. Dr. Kirscher, all the time. You prescribe these things. More importantly, you see the complications of them. Dr. Drogi, you remind us how to fix those complications when we're confused in the heat of battle. Gentlemen, let's start with this. When you are presented with a patient who has got a bleeding event and you think that they're on an anticoagulant, how do you even start the conversation? Where do you go clinically? Dr. Kircher? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think the first step is to try to get a history from the patient's loved ones and to trust nobody when it comes to the EMR. Patients will frequently pre be prescribed things in the EMR, but they may be at another hospital that's prescribed a different one, or they just may simply not be taking it for a number of reasons. So once you've established the possibilities of what they might be on, then you actually go down to figuring out what they're actually taking. This can be through chart digging, through Dr. Drogi or one of his associates. And then we also have a number of assays that we use. Um, in the real world, honestly, the first thing we look at is a point of care INR, which is most useful for patients who are on Coumadin or Warfarin therapy, but sometimes it's elevated if patients are on novel anticoagulants. Likewise, we can use a TAG or thromboelastogram to look for the presence of Coumadin or a vitamin K antagonists, but really targeted anti-10A level is the best way to verify the activity of novel anticoagulant, uh, along with a history about the last time they might have taken the dose. All right, so you just dropped a, a bunch of terms that a lot of us are familiar with, but not everybody. You use novel, not direct. I don't know what Dr. Drogi thinks about all this, but Dr. Drogi, in your world, teach us a little bit about vitamin K antagonists, warfarin, the common name, direct oral anticoagulants, which ones have market dominance right now? What are we seeing most of? Yeah, so if you get into the literature, there, there hasn't been a whole lot looking at marketing outside of what you'll get from reports of top 200 drugs. What I will tell you is that's, that's evaluated every year. New reports are put out with top 200 drugs. And I, I'm careful to say novel nowadays. It, novel was, uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with it. You're still going to hear people say novel or say NOAC for, for novel oral acting anticoagulant. And Novel, these drugs have been out for six or seven years. So some of those mechanisms of action, uh, at least from an oral standpoint, aren't as new. So I usually say direct. Some folks will say target specific if you want to get into that. So you'll see DOAC, target fancy. specific. It, it does get, yeah. but but it's reasonable based on how these drugs work. So I, I have gone back and forth and other talks I've done over the years saying both direct target specific. So for me, the curves that you will see in, in the market, the target specific or direct oral anticoagulants are sort of taking over. And even going back to 2015, those curves uh, in, in this, I, I'm picturing this uh, this 
figure I remember from a publication in 2015 that show them um, slowly going up while warfarin slowly going down. And if you go to 2015, you'll find that a lot of the papers that have evaluated other indications for these target-specific oral anticoagulants weren't even published yet. As more and more have been published since then, I would imagine that the inflection of that curve has only gone upward. The companies would certainly want us to believe that's the case when they're looking for investment. No doubt about it. Let, let me ask a quick question, though. When you talk about a novel, a targeted, or direct, what's being targeted? What's the actual anticoagulant process? Can you give us 30 seconds from your point of view? So with each of these, warfarin, you're talking about inhibiting vitamin K-dependent factors that are involved in, in the coagulation cascade, 2, 7, 9, and 10, through an enzyme called vitamin K uh, or C1. Okay, so it's fairly direct. That's why you can also see it in patients who may not be having good nutrition, who are not getting vitamin K, and actually mimic looking if they're on warfarin. When you get into the other two subclasses, I'll throw out, uh, you have direct thrombin inhibitor, which is what you're going to find in, in one of the products, dabigatran, that is a selective inhibitor of thrombin, just as it's in its name. It's very directive. It gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about the anti-oral anti-10A inhibitors, which would be your rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban, patrixaban. Uh, they vary in their dose dependency, their selectivity, but they are direct anti-10A inhibitors, meaning that as a drug, they directly uh, interfere with the factor 10A activity or anti-factor 10A activity, which is why Dr. Kirshner mentioned monitoring anti-10A as a lab versus other agents like low molecular weight heparins, such as deltaparin and oxaparin, that indirectly modulate activity through enzymes such as antithrombin. I'm glad you mentioned low molecular weight heparin because that was a uh, thing that Jordan hadn't asked about. But when we look at patients coming into the emergency department, it's not uncommon that they were prescribed a therapeutic Globinox bridge to either achieve a target INR or to you know, get a supply from a mail-order pharmacy. That being said, compliance with those is also a concern. Fortunately, the anti-10A level can be used to detect the presence of those agents as well. And when you're talking about a hemorrhage um, or evaluating uh, patients' appropriateness for certain treatments, that can certainly make a difference. And I, and I will say really quick on that note, because this is important, anti-10A, we can talk about them, but keep in mind, while they may still have some quantitative inference, you have to make sure that your lab assays are calibrated for the particular agent. So low molecular weight heparin like anoxaparin, our devices here are calibrated for those agents. They're, they're much more accurate in their interpretation versus some of the oral anti-10As. We still have the appropriate calibration for that. So there's there's some direction in quantitative, but I still look at it as more qualitative. That, that's been my standpoint. But you'll find some places, even some papers, describe it as quantitative, but they might have the appropriate calibration in their labs to have that essay for what it's worth. So how would you use that differentiation clinically, the quantitative versus the qualitative, and somebody who you think is on a directoral anticoagulant who's got a life-threatening hemorrhage, and you're determining whether or not you're going to consider antidote therapy? If somebody is in a life-threatening bleed and they have, I mean, what, what is nice about anti-10A or an anti-10A, um, assuming that you don't have other items that would interfere with the type of test it is, which if we have time, we can go into that. We'd be happy to discuss it, but probably don't. Ultimately speaking, if they have a life-threatening bleed and you have a qualitatively positive, and, and often what we're finding is most of these patients have not just qualitative, but they have they are above the upper end of that qualitative assessment. <clears throat> Outside of getting some of the family history, like, like uh, Dr. Kirster mentioned, I would consider reversal unless there's any other degree of interference or otherwise that could be going on with those patients. All right, take it down one, one level simpler for me. When you say a qualitative assay, what are you talking about? Yes or no? Yes or no. And, and where, do you, where do you get that? You'll get that with the anti-10A. If you have, so, so there are varying ranges for anti-10A assays. Um, ultimately, when you look at therapeutic, 
for something like you know a heparin drip or noxaparin, daltaparin, the low molecular weight heparins, 0.3 to 0.7 is considered therapeutic for DVTs and PEs, 0.3 to 0.5 for other indications like atrial fibrillation. Many of these patients who were coming in that you were considering reversing, I've often found, again, and this is anecdote, plural of anecdote, it's not data, they often tend to be above 1, um, 1.5, or greater than 1.8 is our upper limit. Now, it's going to vary from institution to institution, especially they have other causes, which could be, you know, renal dysfunction. A lot of these drugs are renally cleared or could have, you know, again, ongoing sepsis, coagulopathy. There's a lot that certainly play a role with that. But qualitatively, if you start getting detectable concentrations, especially above what would be upper limit for therapeutic, I would have a much stronger consideration. It would be a much more directive talk, no pun intended, about reversing if the patient is presenting with, with a head bleed or otherwise. Gotcha. Dr. Kirch, anything from your perspective when you're seeing a patient in the emergency department or in the ICU, both the places where you like to work, um, and they've got some sort of thromboembolic event and you're trying to figure out how to treat them, how, how do you decide? Let, let's start in the neuro ICU. Let's say you got a traumatic brain injury patient who has got a venous thromboembolic event. Let's say they got a big clot in their leg, uh, they got a big bleed in their head, now they've got a PE. Where do you go? Boy, that is a that is a conundrum. I tend to be, despite you know all the, the, the training and everything you talk about, I tend to focus on practicalities. So I tend to look at what's safest and what's best for the patient and what's gonna kill them first, to be honest. I mean, if we're being blunt about it, if, if I have someone with, there's a variety of thromboembolic complications. If I have someone with an isolated calf DVT, I'll be naturally less aggressive about managing that than if my patient's having acute right heart failure and signs that they're about to code from a massive PE. Same thing with an ICH. If they have a small ICH on a, on a heparin drip, but that heparin drip is holding open, say, a critical basilar clot, I may not reverse them, certainly, and I may consider risks and benefits of ongoing anticoagulation treatment. You know, no similar to the, the, than the patient who has an acute coronary syndrome. And the question is, you know, do we revascularize them and put them on dual antiplatelet therapy, or do we do medical management and, and, and opt for a staged PCI approach? I think you have to look at what's the highest risk to your patient in the heat of the moment and treat that. I just want to bring up the, a point that you just touched on, which is probably really something that a lot of our listeners may not know and may not be comfortable with. And probably if they're not familiar with it, shouldn't be prescribing it themselves. But I heard you say that in the setting of an intracranial hemorrhage, but a critical vascular stenosis, you might consider continuation of anticoagulation therapy. Yeah. So that's something that's pretty profound for a lot of people who don't do neurocritical care for a living. That's it's nerve-wracking, right? And well, that's scary even as a neurointensivist. The most common reason you would do that, Dr. Bonomo, is something that actually ER physicians would see, which is a venous sinus thrombosis. So that is a clot in the venous drainage system, either the sagittal sinus or the transverse sinus. One of the effects associated with the infarct of the underlying tissue is a cortical hemorrhage. So ED providers would need to start anticoagulation to prevent clot propagation, even though there's already an established hemorrhage on head CT. And we often see the hemorrhage as a presenting symptom of a venous sinus thrombosis. Um, so it's not just something that's restricted to a subspecialty ICU. There are conditions out there where we will start uh, anticoagulation. We will typically avoid boluses. We will have a lower PTT target and use a titratable agent. Um, but sometimes it's necessary to prevent further deterioration, even though there's a hemorrhage uh, on ICH. I'm going to just clarify that comment because I think, again, that's really profound for a lot of our listeners who are EM practitioners that in conjunction with the appropriate subspecialist in consultation, you would consider in the emergency department potentially beginning anticoagulation for someone with a venous sinus thrombosis and a cortical hemorrhage. 
Yes. It's impressive. Dr. Bonomo, there's one thing I will stress with this that he mentioned that I think is important for the listeners to learn from is you don't always necessarily have to go to the same dose or goal serum lab that you might for full treatment in other situations uh, to ha- try to have a better balance between that risk versus benefit, even in the most, I mean, you want to talk about a tightrope of risk versus benefit, as you just discussed there, that's a tough decision to make. So, I mean, it's not uncommon for this or other reasons where you might have a, a bleed that's concerning, that's evolving, that's worsening, of starting with a lower threshold of anticoagulation seeing if they can tolerate that and then moving forward to something that could be tolerated if they get to a community setting. You mean a patient-specific targeted therapy? Crazy. Like individualized medicine, right? It is to a degree. Crazy pants. All right, let me ask you a question, Dr. Drogi. The future, right? Look five, ten years down the range. What are we looking at from an anticoagulation standpoint? What's in pipeline? What's being developed? Where are we going? So there are some new agents that are coming down the road, and I I thought about it, including them and bringing them up. They, they are going to change the way that we at least consider an anticoagulation. Um, I think you're going to see um, some agents that get outside of these specific factors that we've looked at. I don't want to say too much because they're not out yet. Interestingly enough, some of the new items that have been considered have been identified through other factor-based deficiencies or otherwise through very rare disease states that we see from time to time. Uh, in the ED and in our ICUs, factor 11 has been one that's brought up that's not in the common pathway. So it's a little bit on the, on the different, yeah. So 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 maybe more to come there. So I, I am interested to see if we have a pendulum swing from say an agent like heparin or warfarin that works on multiple factors, directly and indirectly, has direct and indirect effect on feedback mechanisms. Now we have these target specific to go back to that where you're looking at factor two or factor 10. Maybe we're going to go back to a multiple factor, both direct and indirect mechanism. And again, indirect mainly being through enzymes that might work in the coagulation cascade or ancillary pathways, which again, there's not time to get into that. But uh, that's where I, I, I will tell you right now, pipeline is more me too. But uh, as far from, to bring back the word novel, right? Because you're asking about what are going to be the novel mechanisms moving forward. There hasn't been quite as much. There's more novel on reversal agents, but even then it's still phase two at the most, very early phase three um, in in those mechanisms as well. So I want to piggyback on that because that brings up a couple things that kind of, first of all, thank you. I I will try to eliminate the novel part from my vocabulary. (laughs) Just an observation. But secondly, it reminds me that unfortunately, we're going to be stuck looking at these coagulation cascade diagrams for the rest of our careers. And what's interesting about that, though, is you look at the analogy to cancer, right? 40 years ago, all cancer treatment looked like generalized chemo to suppress um, oncologic activity and at the same time making the patient feel miserable. That has now uh, evolved into targeted therapies based on patient-specific genotypes and cancer-specific genotypes. Dr. Drogi, do you think we might be moving in that direction for anticoagulation? So Dr. Bonomo would look at you and tell, don't open up Pandora's box with me on this. The impact that I think we're going to see of genomics and proteonomics and some real, I mean, we say target specific, but we're talking about target specific with a single factor involved in the cascade for that patient. There's a great deal of variability between every single patient that comes in. You have your underweight, you have your massively obese, et cetera. That alone makes fairly substantial swings in the activity of those drugs once they're in the patient. This, you're talking about how the physiology works for that patient. And how you select an Absolutely. for a patient. That is, that is coming. That level of specificity is coming down the road because, again, I, I would tell you that we, you know, we can measure factor activities, right? I mean, again, at our facility, which we're very thankful for that, we still don't know the difference between a factor that's working at 60% versus 70% versus 100%. And that might be the difference between 
how 100% works in me versus 100% in Dr. Bonomo or yourself, right? There's a great deal of intrinsic variability that's there that we're only beginning to understand. So it makes me very happy. I look forward. Like that's going to be perhaps that open door, Dr. Bonomo, is, is something along those lines and focusing on how that drug, and I'm going to be very generic and say that drug, air quotes for people who can't see it, for that patient in their presentation. Now, the one thing I would keep in mind is as we get to that, we also have to keep in mind that reversal may not have as much of a one-size-fits-all either. So that can, can become more complicated. We have very careful what we wish for. But hopefully, if you have better targeted and appropriated patient-specific anticoagulation, it'll be a little bit easier to have comfort in correcting their presentation if they come bleeding or otherwise. That's interesting. I'm really grateful that you didn't use the term pharmacogenetics because you've explained it to me before, pharmacogenomics, right? It blows my mind. But what I do remember hearing recently was that um, from a regulatory standpoint, novel anticoagulants are not going to be allowed to market without targeted uh, reversal agents. Uh, just because of the risk that we have seen in the past. So I think that's interesting, too, to think that companies who are producing a novel anticoagulant are going to be responsible for the production of a reversal agent. Well, you know, that's but, where indexing that came from. Don't, don't let me keep that in mind. Sure. Oh, yeah. But let's not forget, too, that even though I agree that specific reversal agents are necessary and, and a welcome thing, all of the direct... See what I did there? Direct oral anticoagulants have a lower risk of bleeding complications than warfarin. Uh, in a population-based study. So even though they have, you know, varying factor activities and varying creatinine clearances and everything like that, in the pooled analyses, they are all safer for the appropriate patients than Coumadin is on a population basis. Yeah, no, no doubt. And the, the safety is important and the ability to reverse it in the patient who happens to fall outside that safety profile is still pretty critical. Hey, it's Christmas time. Someone's going to hang some lights up somewhere. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I appreciate your time greatly. Uh, Charlie, Chris, I love working with you guys. I learn something every time we talk. Any parting thoughts for our audience? Your question about the future, I think it's going to be exciting. I, I overall am interested to see how some of these more patient-specific items could come into play. There will be a lot to learn about it. And I, I will say, as much of a headache as it might give us all, you know, picturing that coagulation cascade in our head, maybe we won't have to remember every single step um, down the way when we get to these, these more truly targeted specific versus direct. That's where I'm excited. And um, again, I, I would just say work as a, a team together when you have these patients and you're talking about reversal, because it certainly does get complicated with these agents. It takes a team to do it. I couldn't agree more, Chris. And I'm glad that you're part of our team. I think for me, for an emergency provider, first of all, don't be too shocked if, if someone tells you something that maybe seems a little bit dangerous or a, or atypical, but really just work as part of a team. If you're transferring these patients or sending them to an ICU at your shop, you know, talk with the folks that are going to be receiving them. We have to move towards a multidisciplinary approach to our sickest patients so that we can do everything we can to change the trajectory of these patients' care as they transition from the ER, possibly transferred to another hospital and then to intensive care or operating room. Outstanding. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this. To our audience, thank you for listening to this podcast from the National Stroke Education Center and thestrokejourney.com. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.